You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Earth Station One, and we are here to talk all about an artist spotlight this week and we are going to be looking at carl barks that's right uncle scrooge fans disney fans we are going to be looking the man the myth and the legend the man who created what is now ducktales and much much more it's just it's just amazing how much he created and you know Everyone knows Uncle Scrooge. Everyone knows the iconic pictures of him diving into his bank vault. And, you know, it's just pretty darn awesome. And, of course, everyone loves that, you know, he's now voiced by, you know, David Tennant. So, you know, Doctor Who fans even get a little bit there. So it's pretty cool. So we got a lot to talk about tonight. We got a ton of people on the show tonight. So the first person we're going to introduce, of course, is my co-host, my co-patriarch, Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy. Did I give Carl Barks a good enough introduction, you think? Yeah, yeah, you did all right. Uh, this is, it's great. It's, uh, you know, we're just coming off of uh, being at, uh, being in Charlotte for the wonderful uh, Heroes Con convention, all about comic books. And I thought it was, uh, yeah, it's great to do an episode about a comics legend. I thought it was pretty appropriate. And I, it's going to be great because you are going to be joined by what, Bill Jordan? tonight bill jordan yes uh the uh yeah he is uh, our go-to guy for all things golden age so it's been way too long since he's joined us so it's going to be uh i think an interesting conversation and if people who don't know who carl Marks is yeah definitely tune stay tuned because i think you're going to learn some stuff and he's a really important figure not only with comics but in as far as disney fans too Oh, yeah, he has a lot to talk about it and a lot of opinions on it, too. So he's always a wealth of information. We're also going to be joined tonight, later in this episode, by our friend Goff from Australia. That's right. Our friend from Beer Nuts Productions is back, and he is going to be talking all about his new film that he's come out with. Should be a lot of fun to actually, you know, find out what he's been working on and all about you should and shouldn't do about finding a job. Pretty cool. I think a lot of people are are interested in that. And of course, you know, Heat has his spin on it. So it should be pretty cool. But of course, we want to hear from you guys at home. Please write at, at EarthStation1 at ESOnetwork.com. Or you could always call us at 404-963-9057. Always love hearing from you guys. So please. And thank you. Thank you to our patrons for listening. You know, without you guys... We wouldn't even probably be doing this as much as we do. You know, we've given you tons of special things. We got special perks now for our patrons. And we even have a new episode of ESO Network Riffs. That's right, folks. Our improv podcast is out. And we are talking all about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom this month. So that is out now exclusively to our patrons. You know, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash ESO Network. And speaking of improv, we have a special guest with us tonight. Mr. John Carr is with joining nice us. Nice segue, Mike. That was awesome. <laughs> I've been getting better at that. I've really been trying. It's almost like we planned it. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> hey, John. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I have to commend you on your segue as well. That was uh, real smooth. Real smooth. <laughs> 
So how's things been? You know, you've been so busy with all these different productions you've been working on with uh, Dad's Garage and such. Oh yeah, yeah. We are um, we are full swing into um, a, a show that's uh, a Wrath of Concha that's opening up here in uh, just a few weeks, and at the same time preparing and starting the production process on a show that's going to open in a few months, and still trying to sell my old play to other theaters. So it's all kind of juggling many different balls all at once. That is awesome. Well, part of the reason we had you here is you know with us being the geeky podcast of Atlanta and such, you know, doing the wrath of con that you guys are doing. Yes. Yeah. We're super excited about it. Yeah. We're, uh, we're doing wrath of con. It's opening July 5th and it is, it's basically, uh, uh, for legal reasons, we can't officially say this, but essentially it's dragon con to play. Um, it's just um, our experiences going through sci-fi conventions and having a great time. And, uh, it's been uh, it's cool kind of like putting it all together into a story form and uh, making something cool happen. That is awesome. And, you know, you know, is this a brand new play or is this coming back? How's this? How- so, so it's kind of an interesting way that we're doing it. Um, this is actually a remount of a play that we did back in 2012. That's what I um, thought. Yeah. And so the interesting thing about it is we're doing this. And then Dragon Con's happening at the um, beginning of September. And then right after Dragon Con ends, we're doing Wrath of Con 2, which is a brand new script that's, you know, um, based on, like, what's happened to us over the last, like, year or two. And it's been interesting, like, looking just how nerd culture has changed only in the last, you know, eight, nine years. And it's a completely different beast. Oh, completely. You know, we're a product of that beast, so... Yeah, yeah. As well as you guys are in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's been cool and kind of reexamining kind of what we wrote in 2012 and what we thought was funny and and how nerd culture was then. And then, you know, Marvel movies happen and all of a sudden it's mainstream and it's uh, and so like how that has all affected all of us as well. Well, exactly. And, you know, it's how people say, I'm letting my geek flag fly now, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's like, really? You're a geek. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. You know, I remember when Doctor Who started and it was Christopher Eccleston. Yeah. He was my the first doctor, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Absolutely. no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, definitely. We've, uh, we've, um, after the 300 guys showed up. It was kind of like, you have too many abs to be at dragon con. What are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. You, you guys are just too damn good looking and way yeah. too good in shape. <laughs> exactly. Shouldn't you be at the football game or something? <laughs> exactly. Oh, that is awesome. But yeah, it's, it's great that you guys, you know, are partaking in that. And, you know, you guys are also doing, you know, still, you know, you're doing the, eat late night stuff you're doing you know you're just true improv and such also oh yeah oh yeah absolutely we still got comedy going on you know thursday fridays and saturdays and all that good stuff um but it's also been cool because i've been with the company now for close to 15 years and it's been cool trying new things and experimenting with things but also just as you get older in life you know what you like and what interests you changes and it's cool to be at a theater that kind of like changes with that it's because you've seen you know going from when you guys were in that warehouse oh yeah mm-hmm. and all the way to your own location and everything yep that yeah is. we're 
you know, we've bought our own building now. We've got a real live theater. It's a, it's been a crazy, crazy journey. I remember taking my son to your children's shows, like at the warehouse and, you know, oh, on Saturday yeah. mornings. And it was just like, and he was like four or five at the time. And, <laughs> and it's just like how much everything's changed. And now he's graduated high school and he's like, you know, you know, improv, what's that, dad? You know? <laughs> <laughs> No, exactly. Exactly. And it's been cool. And it's been, I, I think that's one of the cool, the interesting things too, about like writing about nerd culture from, you know, eight years ago, like as a human being, I've gotten older and it's been interesting to see how my relationship with, you know, fandom and that sort of thing has changed. And that's a lot of what like Dragon Con 2 is about is like, we're all the writers here are like, uh, late 30s early 40s and so you know the, that idea of staying up till 4 a.m in the at in the morning you know partying and drinking it's not 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 really a feasible anymore you know it's not really the thing i look forward to anymore and like how does that affect you know fandom and being like yeah sometimes i want to have brunch i just want to get up early and have brunch with my friends because i'm at that age now oh exactly it, I was like this last year at Dragon Con was my first year when I looked at the people and said, God, they look young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Uh, see one of our, our writers in a lot of what Dragon Con uh, 2 is based around. It's just his experience last year because he brought his niece to the for the first time to Dragon Con. And they're both nerds. They're both huge nerds. But she is a 18 year old nerd and he is a 40 year old nerd. And it's so weird being in a situation where you're like, we're both nerds, but we don't understand each other. We don't have <laughs> as much of a connection and, uh, and learning to get over that and not become the grouchy old man. is like, I remember back in my day. We know <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. understand that. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's interesting though. Cause you know, it's been a while since we've talked to you and I wanted to talk to you real quick about your show you put on your, yourself. Oh, um, Oh, uh, that was a black nerd. Yes. 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 Yeah. Cause we, we didn't get a chance to get you on before that. I wanted to congratulate you for that, dude. It was awesome. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. That was a, that was a super fun show and super kind of a riskier cast than we've done before, but it was cool to see it work out. Oh, it's hugely successful. And, you know, everyone was talking about it. I had actually even talked to Dan Carroll about it. And he was just like, oh, nice. And he was like, yeah, it was, he, he could not stop raving about it. So <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll go, I'll go. <laughs> and you did great. You were awesome, man. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was a real cool, that was a cool experience. And like, and for those who don't know, um, it's uh, the play is called Black Nerd. And so it was kind of a, a little, a little autobiographical, but also just kind of a little, some of the experiences that I've talked to folks about and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of that idea of feeling trapped between different cultures and how you identify and, and learning to love yourself, even though you don't fit into any any particular category very well. No, it, and it it was felt like it was right from your soul. It was awesome. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you know, just wanted to congratulate you on that. I appreciate it. So, how could people find Dad's Garage? Uh, the fastest way is to check out Dad's Garage online. You can just go to dadsgarage.com. That'll have all the shows and upcoming events listed. And uh, yeah, anytime you're in Atlanta, always come down. There's 
always something going on. I think the only days that we have nothing happening are Mondays and Sundays, but all the rest of the days, there's somebody in the building making some type of comedy some way. That is awesome. And your website is? Uh, dadsgarage.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, sir. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment. This is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. First up in theaters this weekend, we have a sequel to a beloved animated franchise, which is Toy Story 4. Now, the interesting thing about this movie is that I know that I personally wasn't necessarily feeling really hyped about this movie just because I think that the franchise is really great as it stands. It's one of those rare franchises that I thought kept getting better and better as it went along. And I thought the Toy Story 3 was such a great ending. You know, a nice goodbye to all our characters and wrapped up the story in a nice little bow. So I was a little bit worried about another movie adding on top of that. Do we really need this? Well, whether we needed it or not, it's actually getting really good reviews. It was about 100% on Rotten Tomatoes the last time I checked. So it looks like critics are saying this one is worth it, even though we've already had three movies in the franchise. So I'm looking forward to it a little bit now more than I was. Don't know if I'll get a chance to see it in theaters, but we'll definitely be looking forward to seeing it on DVD. And next up, with a little bit of a change of pace, I guess you could say, is the movie Child's Play. Sounds like a nice family movie. Well, not quite. This is definitely no Toy Story. It's a reimagining of the 1980s horror flick about a mother who gets her son a doll without realizing it's no ordinary toy and is, in fact, something really terrifying. And it features the voice of Mark Hamill as Chucky. Now, I do have to hand it to this movie. I think that releasing Child's Play the same weekend as Toy Story 4 is a clever bit of counter-programming. I know that this one looks way too scary for me, so I'm going to be giving it a pass. But I hope that horror fans enjoy it. And again, nice little bit of counter-programming up against Toy Story 4. And if you're looking for more horror thrills, on DVD this week, we have the movie Us from director Jordan Peele about a beach vacation gone wrong. And that's it for this week. If you're looking for more entertainment-related content, be sure to check out my blog, boxofficebuzzab.wordpress.com for all the latest reviews on this summer's blockbusters. The PWR Spot Show Podcast is a weekly wrestling podcast on the ESONetwork.com. We only talk about the real stuff. You know, Hulk Hogan and Pile Drivers. You can find us on Podbean and iTunes every Monday. You can also follow us on Twitter at PWR Spot Show and go to PWR Spot Show dot xyz hey everyone welcome back to our station one now we are here with our friend goff from beer nuts productions welcome back to the show sir Hey, thank you for having me on, fellas. It's always uh, it's always fun chatting to you. Oh, it's always great have, hearing from you, and it's you know it's it's always great because you always come to us with some really cool stuff, and you have a new movie that you're here promoting. Absolutely, absolutely. So yes, uh, Beer Nuts Productions. Uh, we've just released our seventeenth film, so we're 
and it's a mockumentary come instructional video called How to Land That Dream Job, which uh, gives some atrociously inappropriate and awful advice to people out there who are wanting uh, wanting to find their dream job. Uh, that's pretty much the uh, the premise to this next one. No, it, it, it's interesting. You know, it's like my wife watched it with me and she's in human resources and she was like, that's not what you do. <laughs> yeah, but I, I bet you on the same note, I bet you she also go went uh, you know what? I've had all of those people sit in front of me before. So I'm sure actually I bet you she could relate probably better than uh, a lot of people to the film. Oh, very much so. She said, yep, I've seen that person. I've seen that person. <laughs> and she says, oh, you think that's bad? You should have heard about this one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure she's got some great stories, no doubt about it. But, yeah, so basically there's 16 different job applicants who are coming in looking for a range of different jobs at, uh, at the old Beer Nuts Productions Fun Factory. And I uh, – I sort of guide them through how, how best or how not to uh, interview for a, for a job. So I wanted to sort of cover all sections of society. So I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anybody out. So that's why there's 16 different people and they come from all walks of life. Oh, very much so. And or as you know, I like to say it's the type of people you would see at Walmart most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, like it's, I, I know I've, I've probably mentioned this to you fellas before, but it's, really important for me when I'm writing a script that if you're going to pick on one section of society, you've got to pick on all the sections of society equally. So hopefully I haven't missed anybody out with this one. No, as we like to say, you're a great, you know, equal offender. So it's perfect. That's it. Yeah, no, and, and I like to be that way. So no, that's, uh, that's very good. Mm -hmm. No, it was a lot of fun as always. And, you know, how long does it take you to come up with one of these projects? Well, th this one took a while uh, because, well, obviously I wrote the script and then uh, casting and rehearsing the actors took a long time because this is the biggest one we've done in regards to cast size. So there was 21 cast members and seven crew members, which was uh, our, our biggest project to date. And so, uh, yeah, casting it took a while because, I mean, uh, some people will recognise a few of the actors uh, in it from previous uh, Beer Nuts Productions, but uh, there's a lot of new faces in this one too. So uh, I had to go through the whole casting process, making sure that we get the right actors for the right roles. And I, I must say, I was really, really thrilled with the actors. I thought each one of them did a, a fantastic job. And so, yeah, after I've cast them, I've got to rehearse them and make sure they're delivering the jokes just right. And then uh, getting all the, there's a few different props and things that we needed for this one and costumes, of course. And yeah, so there was a, uh, quite a bit to organise for this one. So it was about three months in the planning, and then the shoot, edit, and release takes about a week. So that that's really quick. But, yeah, about three months in planning. Wow. Okay, so it's not like, all right, let's just go grab our camera and film people or anything like that. No, 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 no. There's, there's a, lot of, uh, uh, a lot of thought that goes into these projects. I mean, I take a lot of care and time with the writing of the script, and then it's all about uh, – yeah, like I say, finding the right actors and the right crew members because we needed a few extra crew with this one as well. And then, uh, you know, you've got to costume them out properly. And, uh, you know, I, you know, got to be a professional and do it all as, uh, as, I mean, our budgets aren't huge, which means that we have to be really clever and careful about how and where we spend our money. So uh, we, we take a lot of time and care making sure that 
the money gets spent in the right areas and the right places and uh, making the best project that we absolutely can. So a lot of organization goes into it. Right. And for those of who haven't heard you before, um, give me the elevator speech about Beer Nuts Productions. Where are you guys located and where are you out of and what makes you guys so special? Absolutely. So, yeah, we're, we're based uh, on the Gold Coast in Australia. So for those who don't know much about uh, geography here in Australia, uh, the best way to describe it is I live on the Florida of, the, of Australia. So uh, all the weird stuff happens here. All the tourists come here. Uh, we have the same sort of climate, all the palm trees, all that sort of stuff. So we're like uh, Florida condensed into a little tiny area is where uh, is where I'm based here in Australia. And, uh, yeah, Beer Nuts Productions, we've been going for, uh, well, over 10 years. 2006 is when we started. And, uh, like I say, we've done 17 films now. One full-length feature film, which was a, a documentary on disability and mental health. So that's probably the only serious film I've ever made. And then uh, 16 short films. And the they all go for about half an hour long. The, the latest one, the How to Land That Dream Job, goes for about 25 minutes. And uh, always make sure they're always above 20 minutes in length. And, yeah, people just get onto the website and download uh, the projects uh, directly. That's kind of our business model. So uh, I, I suppose, in a way, I guess you'd sort of call us an independent Netflix. I mean, people go online and they download our projects directly from us. So it's a little bit unusual in that case because a lot of production companies or distributors don't sort of do that. So we're a little bit unique in the way we uh, we, we run our business, but it uh, it works for us. You know, people jump on the Beer Nuts Productions website and they we've also got audio downloads and a couple of books as well. And they, they can flick through, see what they want to purchase and uh, – yeah, they, they download and hopefully enjoy our, our work, which is all mainly comedy stuff. Comedy is my number one genre. No, it's wonderful stuff too. And I think I've probably seen a dozen of your films. So it's, it is a lot of fun, my friend. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. I really am, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, I know it might sound a bit corny or sappy or whatever, but at the end of the day, I mean, anybody in the entertainment industry is there to entertain people and to make others happy with their work. So, I mean, and Beer Nuts Productions is no different. I mean, we're here to give people a laugh so they can forget about their stress and troubles for a little while. And uh, so hopefully if my uh, silly films do that for people, then that's fantastic. That's what I want. So, no, I'm, I'm really pleased to enjoy our work. It is. One, oh, of, the things, uh, one of the things I've noticed uh, looking at your past films, and I haven't had a chance to yet see this one, but – um, is uh, how easily they sort of translate, even though you're, you know, half a world away or, yeah, almost half a world away, it, they still easily translate to, to sort of universal concepts. When you're creating them, do you take that into account or do you just sort of uh, write to what you know and just hope that that translates as well to other other countries and other, you know, other... Not- I, I, I absolutely no. I, I absolutely have that at the forefront of my mind because I mean my business is a worldwide business, so it would be silly for me to to write something that's so you know colloquial Australian that nobody else can understand it. That would be counterproductive. So yeah, when I'm writing a script, I try and make every effort to make it as universal as I can. So it doesn't matter if you're in Finland or in Calgary or wherever you are in the world, you know, hopefully you can download the film and you can get a really good laugh. So no, I, I do make a really conscious effort to make sure that it's accessible for everybody, no matter 
you know, where they are. So, yeah, no, because I think that's really important, you know? So, yeah. Has there been any sort of surprises as you've, uh, you know, uh, uh, released things to the world on some of the reactions that you've gotten in other countries? Uh, well, I, I suppose, uh, like, like I say my, in the last answer, my goal is to be universal. And so I want people from no matter where they're from to enjoy my work. But uh, I, I was a little bit surprised how quickly the North American audience really embraced and enjoyed what I do. You know, I, that there's not, uh, I don't think there is as big a difference between cultures as what people might think. I mean, there's obvious things, of course, that everybody thinks about, but I think uh, deep down, everybody is kind of like the same, I suppose, for the want of a better word. I mean, we all have the same sort of hopes and dreams and likes and dislikes, no matter where you're based in the world. So that sort of brings us all sort of together. So that there's not as huge a difference as what people would probably think. So it more comes down to the language that I use in the films to make sure that's more, you know, universal. But uh, the, the themes are pretty much the same. I mean, we've done documentaries on the environment and on uh, uh, prostitution and, and pornography and some pretty touchy subjects, but we always try and bring humour to those sort of uh, touchy subjects. But, uh, yeah, I mean, th- those are things that concern people or, or people talk about all over the world. It's not something that's unique to... Uh, any specific one place. Absolutely. Here, here. Um, have you seen as your you know, films have evolved and your career has evolved as an international filmmaker, have you had to adjust for that? Well, the good news was that when I was in my early 20s, I toured around doing stand-up comedy. That was my job. So I actually uh, toured North America and the UK uh, doing stand-up comedy. So when I was doing my stand-up, I learned uh, a lot of lessons in regards to, you know, language and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's simple things. For example, I mean, in in Australia, we call uh, the drugstore, we call that the chemist. So we're off to the chemist. You guys say we're going to the drugstore. So it's just a matter of just knowing those one or two little words or phrases and uh, and fixing them up. But, uh, yeah, so I was lucky. I kind of had a bit of an education uh, so the, the the evolving that happened, I suppose, happened before Beer Nuts Productions uh, was started. So uh, yeah, I was a little bit lucky in that kind of uh, in in that way. Well, sure, and it it thrills me to hear that you have a growing audience around the world, especially here in North America, because we've been trying to help promote you for a couple of years now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, I, I really appreciate that, and I do find that. Uh, yeah, for some reason, the North American audience, they really, uh, I th- I have a feeling I could be wrong. Well, you guys would probably be better to, to answer this than me, but I think it's because maybe uh, I don't really hold back in my film. So my, my opinion is if a joke is there to be told, I tell it. So it might be a little bit rude or risque to some, but to me, it's all fine because it's meant in humor. So I just go at everything 110%. I don't hold back. And I think uh, in North America, there's been quite a bit of censorship and a lot of uh, people holding back. So I think that people are finding it refreshing that here comes a guy with a a film and uh, he absolutely tells all the jokes and he goes to the places where people aren't usually willing to go. So I think that might be one of the reasons why the North American audience tend tend to like my work. No, I could totally see that. And yeah, things are getting weird here. And, you know, you're a fresh 
how do they say it a breath of fresh air yeah well uh, yeah well I, I'm, I'm glad because like i said earlier I'm, I'm glad that that's the case you know i'm glad that people can sit down and watch my films and uh take a bit of a, a break from all the nonsense that goes on in the world so that's uh that's a really good thing for me and uh that's the great part about what i do as well in regards to technology i mean you know 20 years ago in the late 90s i mean there was no way I could do a business like this because there just wasn't the technology to be able to jump online and download a film and all that sort of stuff. Whereas nowadays it's, it's very simple. So, you know, I, I think uh, I'm quite lucky in that regard too. So I get to share my work all over the world, which is something that I would never have been able to do 20 years ago, which is fabulous. Right place at the right time. Yes, absolutely. Yes. No, that is fantastic, sir. So, what is now the process you're releasing this film and when do you get started on your next project or do you take a break between? No, no, no. I'll, I'll uh, yeah, we'll get cracking on the next one pretty much right away. So yeah, the uh, how to land that dream job is up online now from the beer nuts productions website, which is just beernutsproductions.com. So people can jump online and download the film right now. And uh, yeah, as we're speaking, we're, we're, uh, we're, working on i've got the script is all ready for the next project so uh, we'll just uh, i'll just start getting working on that uh, quietly in the background and uh, hopefully those that follow me on social media will uh, will see little uh, clips and things like that come up about that one in the few months time when that one's uh, sort of getting ready to to go but uh, yeah it's always busy to uh, well always busy it's always good to keep busy and to uh, you know keep uh, keep the good momentum going Thank you so, so much for joining us here on Earth Station One tonight, and we will talk to you soon. Absolutely, fellas. Thank you so much for having me back on. Hey, everybody. Michelle here with the Iconic Rock Talk Show Moment. Uh, last time we said goodbye to Leon Redbone, one of the most unique performers in music, and now we're saying goodbye to uh, Mac Rebenack, a.k.a. Dr. John, the Night Tripper. Um, he took that New Orleans flavor into whatever he did, wherever he was. He was part of the Wrecking Crew back in the 60s. Uh, he's played on like a billion albums. Um, cannot capture his whole career here. But probably his most famous song was Right Place, Wrong Time. Uh, you may have heard that in the movies Dazed and Confused or Sahara or the show American Horror Story. He also did the theme to Blossom and the opening song for Princess and the Frog from Disney uh, down in New Orleans. He was a 2011 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. And now we say travel on well and laissez le bon temps rouler. Uh, unfortunately, Brian Wilson is having to postpone his summer tour. Um, sadly, uh, the mental health issues that he's dealt with for much of his life have come back on him. Uh, he said he had been feeling better, but then it crept back and I've been struggling with stuff in my head and saying things I don't mean and I don't know why. It's something I've never dealt with before. We can't quite figure it out just yet. Um, we wish him the best in in working with this. And know he'll get better. Um, and what's, I think, good about this is that, you know, taking the attitude that you can figure it out. You just haven't done it yet. And it's, 
He's always been honest with his fans about what's going on with them. Um, and it's really been important to uh, let people see that mental health issues don't discriminate. So uh, wishing him all the best. And also, um, there's a story in the New York Times that is getting a lot of media reaction that you might want to check out. It's called The Day the Music Burned, and it's about a fire that happened 11 years ago on the Universal Backlot. There was a huge fire, and it's starting to come out now through the story that uh, half a million masters may have been destroyed. And some of the artists wh whose masters were owned by Universal uh, Guns N' Roses, Eric Clapton, Elton John, the Eagles, Aerosmith, Steely Dan, The Police, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Leonard Skinner, Tom Petty. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And those masters, that's the original source for the music, and they may be gone forever. Uh, Universal, of course, is playing this down, but the artists were never told that their masters may be gone forever. So as you can guess, the lawsuits are starting to roll, and it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. Uh, this has been the Iconic Rock Talk Show Moment. Check out the blog, iconicrocktalkshow.wordpress.com, and we'll catch you next time. Everyone these days could use a little support, and your friends at the ESO Network are no different. With the ESO Network Patreon, the cool thing is, is when you help support us, it's you who will benefit. With four tiers starting for as little as 25 cents a week, you can listen to some of your favorite network podcasts early, hear exclusive content, maybe get some ESO swag, or even possibly take a shot at the geek seat. All you need to do is sign up at patreon.com backslash ESO network. Life is like a hurricane in Duckburg. Race cars, lasers, aeroplanes. It's a duck blur. Might solve a Hey everyone, welcome to the main topic and this week we are looking at our artist spotlight and we are taking a peek with Carl Barks. Take it away, Mikey. Absolutely, yeah, Carl Barks. This is exciting because this is uh, one of the, I think one of the preeminent uh, illustrators, creators uh, of comics. Um, it probably doesn't get quite the recognition, especially in this country, that uh, maybe he should, but we're going to do what we can to correct that. Um, and with us, we have, uh, it's been way too long since he's been back here on the station. Our Golden Age Comics guru, Bill Jordan, is here. Howdy. Howdy, sir. Um, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I'm excited about Carl Barks. I tell you what, what a great topic. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, you were definitely one of the first persons I thought of. Uh, certainly when you were doing your uh, Golden Age of Comics podcasting, uh, uh, back in the day, uh, I mean, he came up a lot. You devoted quite a bit of episodes to his work. Yeah, I did. You know, you make me sound old when you say back in the day. but I <laughs> Back in the he, podcasting day. He <laughs> was a pioneer of podcasting <laughs> back when they had a record player to record it. <laughs> exactly. Back, back in the golden age. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> the golden age of podcasting. That's right. <laughs> Believe me, somebody who, if they haven't already, they'll probably start that podcast. Uh, well, um, I had fun. I had fun doing it. And you're right. I talked a lot about Carl Barks and uh, the, the Disney ducks that he didn't create, but that he helped invent and that he helped uh, mold and, and all that over the years. Really an amazing artist and amazing storyteller. 
Absolutely. And I want to get right into it. Um, what do you remember your first memory or uh, the first time you really recognized Carl Barks's work? You know, that's hard to say. Probably uh, when I was in uh, uh, probably high school or college, when I was really uh, getting started in my comic book collecting, uh, you know, like everybody else, I was probably more interested in the superheroes, read a lot of Spider-Man, read a lot of Batman and uh, enjoyed those. And then a friend of mine said, have you ever read any of the, the Disney Duck books by Carl Barks? And I said, well, I know who Donald Duck is, but who is Carl Barks? And um, I don't remember what the first issue was that I actually read. Uh, I, I have uh, pretty good memories of reading uh, Voodoo Hoodoo, which was one of the uh, earlier four color. Uh, I think it was four color 238 maybe that uh, Carl Barks did. But uh, I realized pretty quickly after I read that story and then some of the other stories that uh, this, this friend of mine had, that this guy was not only a great artist, but just an incredible, uh, you know, storyteller. His narratives, uh, the way he put the stories together, were just uh, really amazing. And of course, uh, from there, I discovered his work on uh, Uncle Scrooge, and that really got me excited because some of those stories were kind of like, uh, you know, watching a Saturday afternoon matinee or watching Raiders of the Lost Ark or or something like that. So, you know, really cool stories and uh, really. Uh, you know, really great uh, visuals as well. Yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to pin down. And one of the reasons why it's hard for me to pin down as well is because uh, a lot of his work wasn't credited to him. So, because uh, I can remember, uh, I would eat up, I mean, mostly superhero stuff, but when I was younger, I mean, I got tons of comics, uh, anything that was, was basically in comic format. So if it was superheroes, Marvel, DC, great, uh, Charlton at, in, back in the day. Uh, also, anything Archie-related, uh, I was getting all of that. Uh, other characters like Dennis the Menace or um, Bugs Bunny um, and uh, Walt Disney's Comic and Stories. Uh, there was tons of those. Of course, at this point, they're being reprinted. But I really have no idea, um, you know, a lot of those stories, who did any of that work? Um, because it's just, uh, yeah, it wasn't documented there. Well, you know, like, like so many things, it was the fans that finally uh, brought his name out into the, the spotlight and got him recognized as what for many, many years people recognized by, you know, his art and by his storytelling. They didn't know his name. In fact, he was called the good duck artist, um, by the fan base because no one knew what his name was. So, Everybody knew who the good duck artist was by the stories that they read, but they didn't know his name. And finally, some enterprising fans uh, tracked him down in California where he was living at the time. And uh, everybody got to, of course, at that point, know who he was. And he became very famous and popular. And the rest is history, as they say. But you're right. You know, a lot of Golden Age artists generally, and in particular, Barks and, and many of the Disney artist uh worked um incognito because of course you know the byline was walt disney and yeah. that's who got the credit absolutely and and to be fair uh well i mean I don't, it, to be yeah no like a lot of that stuff wasn't credited i mean a lot of the the stories that i was reading like bugs bunny comics certainly the the dennis the menace comics stuff like that they just didn't have they just they didn't even think i guess or or didn't want to acknowledge the actual folks that were uh behind most of that stuff so um you know i mean it, it wasn't certainly disney wasn't alone in doing that uh, or whoever was publishing the books at the time but yeah it was great that later on 
much like a lot of the other creators, uh, he finally got the credit that, that, that he deserves. Um, so yeah, it's really difficult for me to pin down. I think um, it wasn't until probably like you said around college that uh, that around that time where I started to get back after college, where I started back getting back into comics, that I uh, was looking at it from a more serious perspective and really getting to know creators, especially uh, guys that had started off and that were really um, you know important in the early days of comics. Uh, from a variety of things, whether it was uh, Jack Kirby uh, or um, uh, Bill Finger or um, like from the non, well, even kind of super like Will Eisner. Uh, and then Carl Barks was among them. And I used, I used to see his name bandied around, uh, but I never really got a hold of a lot of his stories uh, because I found it difficult to find like, you know, comprehensive volumes that collected those um that were reasonably priced actually <laughs> so oh, yeah. Yeah, well you know the uh Bruce Hamilton and his company they sort of changed that back i guess in the mid 80s uh in through the 90s where they started reprinting all of Bark's works first they did of course some pretty expensive slipcase versions of that that mm-hmm. were all uh black and white but then they uh, then they started producing the square bound uh comic albums uh, that had the trading cards in them and I've uh, over the years managed to put together an entire set of every one of those, including all the trading cards <laughs> and uh, read them all. So that, that, that was probably my best exposure to Barks's work because you can read all the comments and stories uh, work that he did in order. You can read all this four color stuff, all the one pagers, you know, so on and so forth. So um, great way to read the stuff. Uh, you know, if you, uh, if, of course, if you don't have the original comics, which a lot of people don't, uh, but but if not for that, I think you know some of that work would have probably uh, never been uh, you know, seen by a lot of people. Now, do you know much about his life uh, or his works prior to Disney? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, you say uh, prior to Disney. Interestingly, Barks, um, you know, tried to work in the uh, in the the drawing field, the art field. Uh, pre-Disney and wasn't necessarily real successful. Uh, he worked uh, for a while uh, in a uh, in a girly magazine environment. Uh, I think that's pretty well known. In fact, I think one of the uh, magazines that he had art published in was reprinted back in the late 90s, I think, uh, by one of the comics uh, publishers. But, you know, he, he kind of dabbled with farming. Uh, and finally, uh, he got uh, word that the Walt Disney studio was looking to hire artists and he went to uh, Walt Disney and applied for a job as a, a studio artist uh, in the animation uh, part of the, of the uh, studio. And he began work as what they called an in-betweener, which basically was not working on the characters, but on uh, the transitions between uh, you know, the landscapes and whatnot. But while he was working for the Disney studio in the animation department as an in-betweener, he uh, started working on uh, submitting some story ideas, including Donald Duck story ideas, uh, which is interesting. I think he started with the Disney studio about a year after Donald Duck premiered uh, uh, in 1934. So he got uh, fairly well known for his story ideas and he was hired into the story department in the Disney studio and he worked in the story department. So a lot of the early Donald Duck cartoons that you see 
Um, whereas he didn't draw them, uh, he had a hand in uh, writing the stories. He and Jack Hanna, who of course uh, uh, would uh, uh, produce one of the great comic books uh, with Donald Duck that Barks was involved in the very first one. I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, he stayed at, at Disney for quite a while into the war years, I believe, and ultimately decided to leave uh, the Disney studio. And that's when he heard that uh, Western Publishing, which, of course, most people know as Dell, uh, was looking for artists. And he uh, said, uh, gee, I'd like to draw some Donald Duck uh, work. And he did. And uh, he got hired to draw Donald Duck in uh, what became a Four Color Number 9. He drew half the story. Jack Hanna drew the other half of the story. It was published in 1942. And, of course, as they say, the rest is history. So, you know, he, he started out, um, you know, kind of working his way through the industry, ended up at Disney. And then uh, after leaving Disney shortly, uh, after leaving Disney, began, uh, began uh, drawing comic books. Yeah, I was doing a little bit of research uh, this week uh, prior to this and looking at some stuff online. And I was, uh, I mean, of course, back in the early days, he was, uh, I don't, yeah, he wasn't classically trained or I don't think he was officially trained in art at all. I think that's right. I think he did some mail order, you know, correspondence courses a little yeah. bit, but I think for the most part he was self-trained. Yeah, it's not like he was a prodigy that just, you know, was was encouraged by his parents or anything like that, his family, and he just kind of fell into it. He he looks like he went from job to job to job, and and as you said, like mentioned, uh, the farming and all that, and it's a sort of when Disney was hiring, he's like, oh, I'd like to like try out for that. And yeah, he became, uh, I think what they, eventually they call him like a story editor or something like that, right? Yeah, that, that's right. And, uh, you know, he, like I said, he was more involved in uh, writing the gags. He was apparently very adept at writing the gags and, and uh, you know, some of the, the things that you see in the Donald Duck cartoons, uh, you know, right. where, you know, gets, gets in a, a situation uh, and has to get himself out. He was really adept at writing those stories. And of course that carried over to the comics later on. Now, um, before we get into the, uh, the actual uh, Donald Duck and, and Disney work that he did on the comics. Um, like I said, I was trying to do some research and I looked at Wikipedia and some other sources, articles I saw interviews with him and whatnot. Do you know of any good resource or any good biography book that was said that has been written about uh, Karl Barks? Uh, you know, I, I don't know of any actual uh, biography. That's a great question. And if there is a biography of Karl Barks, I, I would like to read it myself. But, gotcha. you know, I'm not aware of that. I, I think a lot of it has come over the years through interviews, uh, you know, because you, you think about Barks. He was born in 1901 and he lived until he was 99 years old and really up to just a few years before his death. He was regularly appearing at conventions and regularly involved in, in the whole comic book scene, you know, the fandom thing. So uh, I think there were an awful lot of interviews of Barks throughout his life. Um, of course, he was named a Disney legend and was honored with the parade at Disney World and all this sort of thing. And I, I think a lot of people interviewed him and, and a lot has been written about his life that's pretty well known through those interactions over the years. Um. Yeah, well, I was. I, I wouldn't be surprised, especially if uh, like there's some sort of European, <laughs> maybe French book about him or something like that. You know? Yeah, I'd like. To, I'd like to see it. Like I said, of course, there have been a lot of uh, you know a lot of works that have uh, been produced with his his fine art and uh, a lot of, of course, his his comic book work and so on and so forth. Uh, and those have annotations and uh, other information about his life spread out spread all throughout those as well. 
well, maybe there's an opportunity for us, Bill. We can get together and, and, and work that work on that biography. Yep, that's right. Well, if I only had the time. <laughs> I know, right? Um, all right, so let's get right into it then. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, 1942, right? Yeah, Four Color Number 9. Uh, yeah. The Four Color uh, series had been around uh, the, as an original series, and then this was actually the second series of Four Color um, that uh, was produced by Dell under license with Disney and uh, Barks and Jack Hanna uh, put uh, put together the contents of Four Color Number Nine, which was, uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, finds pirate gold, very iconic cover. And uh, I think from there, you know, Barks uh, and you know moved into his own uh, stories. Um, I don't know if you want me to go. Th- I won't go through all of these because it's a lot, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, didn't he do over like five, uh, five to six hundred of these stories uh, in his career? Yeah, well, in, in comics and stories and in four color, he did. That's right. And you know, and he had he had uh, stories in Vacation Parade and Christmas Parade. A lot of the giants. There were a number of uh, Christmas giveaway books that were published uh, that that Barks had work in. So yeah, he was pretty prolific. Uh, you know, what's interesting to me? It's funny. He didn't just focus on Donald Duck at the beginning. Um, Four Color Nine was his first work with Jack Hanna. Then Four Color Twenty Nine in 1943. A year later, he did uh, The Mummy's Ring. Um, but uh, then he did another one, Frozen Gold, in, in 1945. That was uh, Four Color Sixty Two. But in between uh, Number Twenty Nine and Number Sixty Two, he actually did a Porky Pig story. Um, that was Four Color Number Forty Eight that was published uh, in 1944. So. He, occasionally he did some some work other than uh, the Donald Duck work. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. I was looking at uh, something um, just to see what other work he had done apart from from Disney and in particular the Ducks. And it's just like a handful of stuff, really. Yeah, it wasn't much at all. Uh, probably less than maybe less than 50 or 60 stories that he did over time. Uh, he, he clearly focused on the on the ducks. He actually did a Mickey Mouse story in 1945, uh, the riddle of the red hat uh, that was published in four color number 79. So, you know, he, he did that as well. Yeah. That's amazing that he really just stuck with it. Uh, stuck with the duck. Um, um, but for good reason, I mean, obviously that was, <laughs> that, that worked out for him. Now, what is it um, that I would imagine, you know, Donald Duck finds pirate gold to me, it's got some elements that probably would take through, like almost a lot of his best stories. I mean, certainly they're more, they're not just humorous, they're adventurous, I think, right? I mean, that's what I kind of think of when I think of a lot of those Donald Duck stories, especially with Scrooge and 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 going on adventures. They're not just the, these like everyday occurrences or, you know, someone trying to get some sleep and somebody being annoying, like it, that you usually think of with with cartoons or gag strips of that time. Yeah, I think, you know, I think if you look at the four color comics stories, those were really the adventure stories, at least for Donald Duck. You know, those were the longer stories. They were a complete issue for the most part. And uh, those were meticulously crafted by Barks to be an adventure story. Uh, You know, the Ducks, sometimes Donald with Huey, Dewey and Louie, a lot of times with his nephews, got sent off on some adventure to you know find something or solve something and then they would have a bunch of misadventures along the way and they would ultimately be successful i think a lot of those stories you would find in the four color 
comics that he did. In the comics and stories, uh, starting with number 31, that was the first uh, issue of Walt Disney's comics and stories that Barks had a, a published story in. Those were a little bit shorter than the four color stories, and not all of them were the adventure stories. They were kind of set more around Duckburg and involved uh, other things. And then, of course, he had the one page gags, you know, that, that were published as well. But I, I think that the stories that everybody really remembers, and, you know, if, if you read The Life and Times of Scooge McDuck that Don Rosa did, um, uh, those all center around a lot of the four color stories. And then later on, he kind of continued that tradition in the Uncle Scrooge. Um, there were three Uncle Scrooge four color stories and then Uncle Scrooge got his own title and he continued those adventure stories. I'll call them uh, in the, in the Uncle Scrooge uh, magazine. And I think that's where most people go when they think about Barks and the work that he did. Yeah. I mean that, then that, you know, it's weird to think that, you know, um, people think of Scrooge McDuck and, 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 and the ducks in general as being like adventurers, but I mean, that would obviously even later on, you know, with the DuckTales series and then the, the new one now, I mean, it, it's still kind of relevant to that. The ducks are, are as far as the Disney characters, the ducks are the adventurers. <laughs> That's right. You know, I don't, I don't know where I read this. I read this somewhere over the years and I can't, uh, I can't quote any source for this, but I read somewhere along the way that Spielberg, Steven Spielberg and, and George Lucas, somewhere along the way were quoted as saying they were influenced by the stories that they read that Carl Barks had done, uh, particularly the adventure type stories uh, that you see in uh, comic and uh, uh, four color and so on and so forth. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe they'll listen to this show and they'll call in for your next show <laughs> and answer the question for you. Absolutely. Uh, that would be great. They are, they are avid listeners. So that would be awesome. That'd be awesome. But you know, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about the the his um you know what made him uh so special so unique or what he was able to do because a lot of like a lot of times when I'm thinking of some of the most innovative um artists and creators from that time as I mentioned like Kirby and uh and Eisner in particular I mean they were taking the comic book format and they were really doing visually a lot of interesting things with the page right they were they were breaking the 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 simple or the yeah the format of uh all the the you know the the eight panels format and all that kind of thing and they were just really bringing like a three dimension to it i don't think you can't really put barks in that category um because most of the stuff that he did correct me if i'm wrong was just the eight panels right yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, he, of course, you know, had a lot of constraints, I think, put on him not only through his, uh, you know, Disney uh, role, but also Western Dell probably had those requirements for him as well. So within within that restraint, within that environment, he's still able to tell compelling stories with uh, great characters. Um, and I think that in and of itself is probably where his genius lies. Is that safe to say? Yeah, exactly. And and that's, I think, why he was called the good duck artist, because his his style was, you know, was very fluid. And, and if you read the stories and the way they flow, you know, it really is like you're watching a movie. You know, you're, 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 you can't wait to get to that next page to see what happens. Um, a lot of the other duck artists that you see or that you've seen didn't have that that dynamic to their work. 
not only that, but Barks was just a master storyteller. The guy could could craft a story and tell that story in such a way that it was, uh, to, to coin a phrase, uh, a page turner. And people would really devour what he did because it was such a great story. And I think that, you know, that's the whole reason that his his works are so uh, celebrated and he was so successful because the artwork was really excellent, but the stories were just great. Um, as far as the characters of that story, now he is attributed, I believe, to creating the character of Scrooge McDuck. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he, um, he created Scrooge McDuck. There's no uh, disputing that at all. Scrooge McDuck, Uncle Scrooge, uh, first appeared in uh, Four Color number 178. Uh, that was in 1947 in a story that was called Christmas on Bear Mountain. And quite frankly, I think Scrooge in that story, if you've ever read it, um, I, I think he was really designed to be kind of a throwaway character, to be honest with you. But um, he later on developed Scrooge. Uh, he next appeared in The Old Castle Secret. I believe that was his next appearance uh, for in a four-color uh, uh, tale and he, and he appeared you know as kind of a, a backup character or, or he was the character who would send Donald and the nephews on but but Scrooge continued to gain popularity and finally um, got his own uh, four color uh, issues and his own title later on and became sort of the uh, you know the, the lead character with respect to the adventures that that everyone was involved in that uh, Barks was drawing and writing about. Yeah, it's amazing to think, yeah, because you would think, uh, I'm sure when he was, uh, you know, first put in that that Christmas story, it was more just a a takeoff or a derivative version of, of course, Ebenezer Scrooge from the Dickens novel. Exactly. You know, and he was sort of the the grumpy, like he was for a long time, the grumpy old guy, and he was just trying to, you know, to to show Donald and his nephews, uh, teach them a lesson, if you will, but sort of a, you know, a negative lesson, but... It turned out that it came just in reverse. Uh, as the story progressed, uh, Scrooge sort of found himself, uh, realized how important his family was, and uh, you know it, it became a, a really happy ending ultimately. But um, you know, just just a, a great story and a great character. You know, he also created um, the Junior Woodchucks that everybody knows about. Um, he created uh, some characters like uh, you know Gyro Gearloose, who a lot of people have heard of. Uh, he created uh, the Beagle Boys, who are the big villains in Uncle Scrooge's world. Magicka Dispel, another big villain in the, in the Scrooge world. You know, he created all of that, that whole universe of Duckburg. Uh, all of that really is a creation of Karl Barks. Right. But and not but not Donald and Daisy, obviously. No, Donald and Daisy, of course. Uh, and even Donald, the three kids. Yeah, Donald, and, and Huey, Dewey, and Louie uh, were not created by Barks either they they were around uh long before uh you know bark started uh his work on the on the animation and the comics but uh he certainly added to their backstory in a very significant way so what uh during this period or during his run uh his massive run are there uh, what stories do you find that that appeal to you personally or do you feel are, are significant of note uh, uh for him uh, that 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 people should pay attention to. Oh, well, they're they're all great. You know, all of the all of the four color stories are just really really something else. Um, uh, a lot of them have have messages that I think are are uh, important messages, whether it's environmental messages, whether it's uh, 
you know, comment, commentary on uh, social issues of the day. You know, one of my favorite stories uh, that, that Barks did, a Donald Duck story, is called A Christmas for Shacktown. Um, kind of a touching Christmas story. I'm a sucker for Christmas stories. I think you know that. <laughs> uh, and, and that's one of my favorites, uh, just because it was obviously very well written and, and drawn, but also just a great message. So, you know, if I had to pick one story that I probably uh, enjoy the most, that one would probably uh, be up there on the list. But you know, I've, I've enjoyed all of them. And I will say this, um, I know we're talking about Carl Barks, but, you know, Don Rosa with his life and times of Scrooge McDuck um, really embellished greatly the, the whole Scrooge McDuck universe and made that whole universe a lot more enjoyable for me and probably many other people. And it's fun to go back now and reread the Barks Scrooge stories after reading uh, Rosa's life and times stories, because you can, you can see those nuggets that were there that Barks created that Rosa expanded and turned into a much uh, bigger universe. Yeah, definitely. Don could have his own uh, special spotlight uh, bias as well. I would say, at least in my mind, after Carl Barks, as far as Disney uh, artists, he's probably just second um, uh, as far as his comic work. And yeah, I mean, he stepped right in, uh, and uh, was not only just somebody who, who um, you know, followed Carl Barks, but really, since he was a huge fan of Carl Barks, like actually took it upon himself to to honor him by by trying to organize his tales and make like give them a continuity that I don't even think Barks was really <laughs> they would really acknowledge, you know. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it's, it's amazing. There, there's so much source material to draw on. You know, you alluded to the fact earlier that Barks did over 500 stories. You know, if you think about it, he started working on Donald Duck as a comic book character back in uh, 1942. He continued to publish original stories uh, in Walt Disney's comics and stories all the way through uh, late 1966. Um, and then he published one last uh, story that he drew in 1968. It was actually in a uh, Walt Disney uh, Walt Disney Comics Digest issue number five. But if you think about you know all those many years that he worked on these characters and, and the amount of uh, output he had, it's, it's pretty amazing what's out there to 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 draw from in order to uh, continue to work on that universe. I think one of the great things about uh, the Donald comics, uh, specifically his work with Donald and why Donald seems a lot more, I mean, he still is the same kind of character as you see on the screen uh, during all that time uh, where he, where he goes into fits and uh, yeah, he can't seem to do anything right and all that kind of, he always gets his come up and so to speak. But I think one of the reasons that in the comics, he's a little bit more um, identifiable is because you can actually really understand what he's saying. <laughs> like, you're just reading <laughs> yeah. it. Like, whereas in the, you know, his, 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 his duck accent is so thick in the, when you watch the, the strips, like, it, or when you watch the cartoons, that you don't have to worry about that when you read the comics. No, that's exactly right. You know, clearly, uh, even with the, uh, the, the work before Barks that Al Talaferro did on Donald Duck, you know, you certainly had a different, a different perspective on the duck. He wasn't the, the guy you could hardly understand. He was somebody who actually, uh, you know, had a, had a voice you could, you could at least see and read and not have to worry about what he was saying. But, um, you know, the Donald Duck character has gone through so many 
permutations and whatnot. But I, I think, you know, Barks really, uh, you know, really um, defined the character probably more than any other other person. You know, there's one other story I thought about that I, I don't know why I didn't mention this. In addition to Christmas for Shacktown, uh, uh, my other favorite Carl Barks story, and, and this one is right up there on the top of the list as well, is uh, it's called Lost in the Andes. Uh, people refer to it as the square egg story. And uh, that's one of my favorite uh, Karl Barth stories as well. That's not a Christmas story, so I, I won't get weepy about it. <laughs> but, uh, but it's a, it's a really cool adventure story set in the Andes, and uh, you know, pretty pretty cool read. Uh, if anybody wants to read a you know the kind of the seminal Karl Barth story, you know, go out and find uh, Lost in the Andes and read that. That that probably will give you a better feel for for Barks and his storytelling than anything else. Yeah. A lot of times when I think of the adventure stories, uh, Lost in the Andes is one of them. And I think there's one, and I might be um, misquoting uh, this, so I forgive me, but I, I think it was like something about the treasure of Genghis Khan. Uh, yeah, there was, I think that was an Uncle Scrooge story. Um, I don't, right. I don't, yeah, I don't remember the, the exact title of it. Um, and I don't remember which screw was in one of the issues of Uncle Scrooge, the actual Uncle Scrooge title. Uh, and I don't remember precisely um, what, what issue number it was. But, yeah, that, that was another one where he goes searching for the treasure of Genghis Khan. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I yeah, I mean, I can't the, – the stories that I've seen or the, what I've read has all been, you know, bits and pieces here and there as far as, uh, you know, getting a, a reprint here and there. Right. Uh, I, I don't have any originals <laughs> because, uh, the, yeah, those are – those are all out of my price range, as well as, like I said, some of the um, the the archive materials, which are are a lot of them have been beautifully uh, reprinted, and uh, they're they've really done a great job, I think, in terms of making like really nice additions to that work. Yeah, I will say, you know, I wrote a I wrote a blog post on my blog a number of years ago, and it's it's on my blog uh, to this day um, uh, about uh, censorship and Disney reprints. And um, not that I want everybody to go out and buy the originals of all the four colors because they are pricey these days. But a lot of the original four colors um, were severely edited by Disney censors later on before they were reprinted due to uh, racial issues or other similar issues that as you transition from the 40s on into the 60s and 70s, some things were just not deemed appropriate. So if you get some of the reprints, um, you're not going to necessarily see it as, as an original Barks presentation simply because of some of the censorship. But I think the name of my, my article that I wrote was the censorship dilemma. And if you go to my blog, uh, uh, goldenagecomics.org, uh, you do a search for the censorship dilemma and you can read the article. I actually have some panel by panel uh, comparisons of how they changed those over the years. Interesting. Yeah. I would imagine that, uh, that some of that happened, uh, but uh, I mean, the company and, and uh, folks that have been doing entertainment for as long as Disney has, yeah, you're going to run across a lot of that because yeah. times do change. Well, it kind of harkens harkens back to the you know the song of the South. You know they they uh, you know that movie came out and was popular, and there's a, a ride at Disney World where you can ride the ride, but the movie's still not able to be purchased because of the uh, censorship issues involved with that. Now, um, I understand that uh, Carl retired in the 60s. Yeah, he retired uh, approximately 1966, but um, 
you know, that was more or less retirement from the, the grind of writing and drawing comic books. But he continued to put out, um, uh, he actually wrote some stories at, at, you know, they were at Disney's request or Dell's request. As I mentioned, he drew one story in 68. And um, then he, of course, uh, he got um, uh, popular through his reprint materials, but also he started uh, commissioning oil paintings of a lot of his famous uh, duck stories. Now, uh, I, I know he started uh, right in the, uh, around the, the, the late 70s, 80s. He was actually doing appearances, conventions, that kind of thing. Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he attended a lot of conventions. He attended, uh, San Diego. In fact, uh, he was one of the, uh, the first inductees into the, uh, the, the, uh, to win the Will Eisner Award and inducted into the Hall of Fame and won a lot of awards really, uh, as a, as someone who, uh, you know, was obviously, uh, just as instrumental in, in promoting advancements in, in comics as Will Eisner was and others. Um, and so, yeah, he, he went to a lot of conventions. He, he commissioned a lot of these oil paintings. In fact, his commissions on the oil paintings became so popular that he stopped taking commissions. And I want to say that was maybe in the mid to late seventies and he would create oil paintings and they would be auctioned. Uh, and of course, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked up any of the, the more recent sales of his oil paintings, but uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars now that those paintings go for. So. I would imagine so. Um, did you, did you ever get a chance to meet him? No, I never did. You know, it's one of my, my disappointments. Um, I would have loved to have met Carl Barks. Uh, I, I never did. I actually have, though, a, a lithograph of um, one of his uh, paintings that he actually signed. It's a signed and numbered litho. So at least I have a signature on the wall. Awesome. Uh, well, I was going to ask you because I know that your collection is extensive. Um, uh, I would imagine, do you, do you target particularly uh, original Barks issues? Uh yeah, I do. Um, and, and honestly, I, I have almost every single Carl Barks uh, Disney issue that was ever created. Wow. So that's impressive. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I have all of them. I'm sure I don't. There were a lot of, as I said, <laughs> some some Christmas giveaways and some other things. And I continue to work on, on tracking those down. But all of the four color issues and the comics and stories issues, uh, I have all of those. Uh, outside or even including the comics, is there anything in particular in your personal collection that uh, you are particularly proud of? Uh, in, in terms of Carl Barks? Yes, absolutely. Well, the, the lithograph that I mentioned is probably, uh, that I'm sitting here looking at it right now while we're talking. <laughs> uh, it's a recreation of uh, uh, Back to the Klondike, where uh, 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 Glittering Goldie and her big grizzly bear are there on the mountain, and she's shooting a rifle at Barks, and Donald and Huey, Dewey, and Louie were panning gold but um uh, that's one of my favorite uh barks related uh pieces of memorabilia that i have in, in my collection o- other than that really with respect to barks uh, it's mostly comics that i have awesome i know i know uh, we were talking about biographical books um and maybe and texts that were that have been done by him and as far as i know i don't think there's been any sort of documentaries on him but i do think that at least one of the DVDs has uh, a, a sort of um, a, a bonus feature on him, um, 
<laughs> one of the Walt Disney Treasures DVDs, I think, does as I've if I was looking correctly at some of the material I was researching. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't have that. Uh, I need to track it down now that you mentioned it. But I do have some of the Walt Disney Treasures uh, DVDs, but I, I don't recall one with anything uh, about parks on it. Yeah, according to the 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 Wikipedia, anyway, if you can believe that, uh, Chronological Donald Volume Two has a salute to Barks in it. So. Hmm. I'll have to look for that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but uh, obviously it's something cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, we've mentioned Don Rosso, I think it's the most obvious uh, influential <laughs> figure that, or figure that was influenced by Carl Barks. Uh, but uh, what else would you say is a, is, is something that you look at and is like, that was strongly influenced by, by Barks? Well, you know, clearly, uh, as we've been talking about uh, Don Rosa uh, and his creation of the life and times of Scrooge McDuck, that was just straight barks all the way. Um, I, I think, you know, um, there, there's probably a lot of things that were influenced by barks, whether they knew it or not. People that read those stories and either subconsciously or not, uh, you know, uh, tried to recreate what Barks did. Like I mentioned earlier, Spielberg and Lucas, if that story I, I heard years ago is true. Um, but you know, there, there are a lot of other, uh, 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 animations out there that, that certainly, uh, you know, sometimes you see a, a homage to Barks that, you know, maybe somebody wouldn't notice, but, um, you know, you kind of think, mm, you know, that's, that's sort of Barksian the way they did that. Uh, I can't give you chapter and verse or a site to that, but things like that, that I've just noticed over the years, uh, some other comics, uh, you might see some references. Uh, to things that Barks um, would have put in his in his uh, work, you know, and you smile when you go past it, uh, you knowing that they were, you know, they were certainly uh, tipping their hat to Barks. Yeah, in fact, uh, when I was looking at the uh, the Wikipedia again uh, entry, I'll give credit where credit's due, especially if it's wrong. Um, it does say that uh, George Lucas, in particular, wrote the foreword for the 1982 uh, print uh, of a uh, collection of Uncle Scrooge McDuck: His Life and Times. So okay, there you go. That and that that work um, that was sort of a seminal work. Uh, that's something I would like to have a copy of one day. But it uh, it's it was uh, I think a low print and hard to you know, hard to find now. But that that might be where I heard uh, Lucas uh, and Spielberg got some of their uh, inspiration from Barks, probably in that uh, forward that he wrote. And also uh, talking about recreating um, uh, some of Barks' work, I think uh, unusually so. Uh, I, it does. Uh, I know that um, the MythBusters actually tried to recreate. I guess there's a in one of the stories, um, one of his early stories. Donald Duck uh, raises a boat from the ocean floor by filling it with ping pong balls, and the MythBusters, uh, from what I understand, attempted to do that as well. So uh, they were able to uh, prove that that one was that was a correct one that 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 uh, could actually work. So Carl uh, Barks, I got was onto something there. Well, Carl Barks, I guess I didn't know that. First of all, that's very interesting. I'm going to have to find that episode and watch it. <laughs> you know, in that in that respect, Carl Barks is sort of uh, his age is Da Vinci because you know Leonardo Da Vinci was sort of the same way. He came up with all these wild ideas about how to do things and never tested them. So, you know, we can call Barks uh, the modern Da Vinci when it comes to that sort of thing. Well, I would imagine that you know if you write 500 stories, at least a couple of them are going to have a ring true. I Probably (laughs) just by law of averages, right? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Well, um, very cool. Um, As we sort of start to wind down, 
Um, if folks are, you know, they've listened to us, they've talked, like they're interested to find out more, or they want to certainly dive in and read uh, accessible, uh, get some accessible examples of what how they can pick up some works by Carl Barks. What would you? Well, I think you know the the best way uh, uh, is to find reprints of the material, of course, and the the best. Best source of reprints, and I see them at a lot of shows, and I'm sure they're available on eBay. They're no longer in print, but uh, back when uh, Bruce Hamilton and his company, uh, Gladstone, uh, created the squarebound reprints in order of all of Barks' work, um, those are really great resources to read Barks' work. And if you want to read them in order, you can actually do that if you can find those issues in order. So that's one way to do it. Um, there was also, as I mentioned earlier, a slipcase edition of his work that was done. Um, and, you know, um, just digging around in bins at comic book shows, you can find a lot of uh, a lot of the reprints. I think um, in addition to the, the, the slipcase reprints and the squarebound reprints that I mentioned, I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that over the years, uh, as they published Walt Disney's comics and stories and as they published... Um, uh, the, the 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 newer versions of those titles through the 80s 90s into the, the 2000s i think a lot of those issues also reprinted some of bark's work for instance i know that there was a replica edition that was published of uh, walt disney's christmas parade number one um and it's probably can be found easily in a two dollar bin at a comic book show these days and that reprints all of bark's work in that particular issue so there are a lot of different ways to do it um, one thing, uh, one resource that I'll mention um, to help people find reprints, if you go to the Grand Comic uh, Database, the GCD website, comics.org, and you pull up any um, reference to an original Bark work. So, for instance, if you wanted to look at uh, Christmas on Bear Mountain, Four Color Comics, uh, second series, number 178, and you pull up that issue in the comics.org website, it'll, for the most part, tell you every place that story has been reprinted. So that's a great resource uh, to go to and, and look up where things have been reprinted. And then you can try to try it down the reprint if you don't want the original. Yeah. That's one thing that uh, I do find uh, over the years, just sort of frustrating about, uh, about Disney is that they're really good about archiving and preserving and, 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 and showcasing a lot of their um, films, short films over the years but when it comes to the print work, uh, it's just been an afterthought. Uh, they, they just have, um, there hasn't been really a concerted effort on their part, in my opinion, to really honor those folks that are even still doing the stories today. Um, yeah. uh, so that's, uh, that's been a little disappointing for me because it's just like a lot of these, uh, these creators who have worked on these um, are, uh, you know, deserve off, obviously the credit that they get, but also, you know, these stories need to be uh, easily in the hands of folks that can enjoy them. No, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, Disney has such a robust archive of their, of their whole universe. You know, they have the Walt Disney archive in California and I'm sure they've, they've preserved some of the comics there, but the best way to preserve it is to reprint it and then future generations have access to it. And of course, not only in print form, but in digital form, uh, which would be the, the, the next step, I would think, if you really want to make Carl Barks' work and other work you know, along the same line available, then the best thing in my mind to do would be to make it available digitally 
for downloading. A lot of people think that's blasphemy. It's not really a comic if you're reading it on an iPad or something. But uh, to make it widely available, the best way in my mind to do it is to make it available through a digital download uh, uh, for pay, probably, but at least you can you can download them and read them whenever you want, wherever you want. Absolutely, absolutely, and they would look brilliant. I think if they were done correctly. So. Yep, that's right. So very cool. Well, I appreciate you joining us uh, to talk all about uh, Carl Barks, and uh, um, it's been great having you back on the show. Yeah, well, it's been great uh, to do the show. It's been a long time since I've done a podcast, and a long time since I've been on a podcast. So I certainly appreciate the opportunity to to be on your show and uh talk about Carl Barks and I'll tell you anytime you want to talk about golden age comic books let me know and I'll be happy to to jump in uh we will definitely uh keep your number handy so to speak so <laughs> I I appreciate it and uh we will be right back with the ESO network Come. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about Swamp Thing, Episode 1. Swamp Thing has started over on the DC Universe streaming app, and the first episode is really, really good. Sadly, the show was canceled right after the first episode aired, and I'm not entirely sure why, since the first episode was amazing. And if that says anything for the season, then whoever canceled this wonderful show should be smacked. Swamp Thing follows Dr. Abby Arcane as she comes back to her small hometown in Louisiana to help figure out what is making people sick in the town. Abby, working for the CDC, starts to find clues with the help of a biologist named Alec Holland. The two try to figure out what is causing people to get sick while being thrown further and further into something that the higher-ups in the town are trying to hide. This episode was amazing FX and story-wise. It was spooky and kept the watcher wanting to see more and wanting to know more. The acting is great and the characters really came into themselves in just the first episode. Even though the show's been canceled, I'm really excited to see all that this entire season has for us. And I'm excited to see what this season will do with the characters Especially the Blue Devil, since they brought him in very briefly, but I'm not sure if they're actually going to get to see how that character is before this season's over, and it's the only season. Well, thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. For the week of June 17, 2019, it's the ESO Network Con Report. Con! All right. Well, uh, June. No, we've got no dates for uh, to see ESO Network folks in June anymore. So uh, we've got a few in July, uh, starting with the first weekend of July. July fourth through the seventh is Convergence in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Kevin and the Mayor of Chicken Town, Felicity, will be uh, doing panels and participating in that event. So uh, check them out at Convergence. Uh, and then we've got two shows here in Atlanta, which sound very familiar. Uh, July 12th to the 14th is the Atlanta Comic-Con. That is a big three-day show at the Georgia World Congress Center. And uh, Mike and I will be there, um, and we will be performing in panels as well on Saturday. 
Uh, and then on July 28th is the one-day show, uh, Wes's Atlantic Comic Convention, the uh, the old standby one-day show that we love so well. It's got uh, a lot of uh, guests and a lot of um, talent, a lot of deals to be made. So, so there's a lot of Atlantic Comic action happening in July as well as that show in Minneapolis. But uh, speaking of comics and conventions, uh, one show that happened this past weekend was Heroes Con, and uh, I have not been to Heroes Con in about five years, I think. So I thought it was about time that I, I corrected that. So I, my schedule was uh, was uh, I was able to fit it in my schedule, and it was great time. I am uh, I am glad that I went this past weekend. It was a great show. Um, it's great to be back in Charlotte for that show. I did not have a table this year. Uh, I just went as uh, just sort of an attendee, just kind of wandered around, uh, chatted with so many people, uh, so many people, so many artists, writers, creators, comic folks. It was just really good to be in that environment again. Uh, Heroes is one of the shows in Atlanta. I'm sorry, one of the shows in America that is uh, still very, very much based in comics. Uh, there's no big, huge celebrity guests. No wrestlers, no musicians, no. I mean, it's everybody who's in there is really uh, loving comics. Uh, so um, there's still cosplay and there's still a lot of other stuff that you see at other conventions. And, and it's great fun. But everything is focused around uh, comic folks and uh, artists in particular. And it's just a great time. There's a lot of, uh, of course, professionals there, as well as a lot of independent um, um new people showing up, new talent that are, are trying to get their foot in the door. And uh, it's exciting. It's a great, great time. I definitely recommend people check it out. Uh, I got to catch up with a lot of different people. I saw some people for the very first time as well, including some professionals. Uh, I had never before seen um, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Uh, he is a, a classic illustrator of comics um, Justice League. He's worked mainly for DC, I think, his entire career. And uh, he had a print of uh, Justice League that he had done. The Justice League as he had done them back in the 80s, which I just could not say no to. Uh, that is my Justice League. Um, so it was great to... And he did a lot of artwork for the merchandising of DC. So chances are, if you have a, uh, a cup or a t-shirt or uh, toothbrush or anything with a DC character on it from the last 20 years, uh, 30 years maybe, uh, you've probably seen his artwork. It's uh, it's amazing to behold. And I think this is his first time in Charlotte. It's the first time I got a chance to meet him anyway. Uh, so um, I also got to see um, J.M. Dematis, if I'm mispronouncing. I'll probably mispronounce some names here, so uh, I do apologize for that. But um, he's a, a great uh, writer as well. And uh, I never got a chance to meet him. And he uh, actually the whole creative team behind the Spider-Man storyline, Craven's Last Hunt, including the artist and inker, were all present. Uh, So those folks of that storyline could get all their issues or the trade signed as well. Um, I went up there and uh, with my new definitive edition of Moonshadow tucked in my bag and got him to sign that. And that was uh, Moonshadow is a comic series that made a lot, meant a lot to me. So that was great. Uh, Also one of my favorite uh, cartoonists of the last probably 25 years, uh, 30 years maybe uh, is, uh, was there. Uh, I'd never met him before. It's the creator of Foxtrot. Uh, and that is Bill Amend. 
Uh, he was there, and it was great to talk to him, meet him, and thank him for all the wonderful entertainment that he's given. Uh, we also saw some. I also saw some really good friends of the station, uh, some folks that we've had on before and interviewed and helped try to promote their stuff. Uh, one of which is Alan O. W. Barnes, who's I think scheduled to be on uh, pretty soon in a couple of weeks. Uh, but he was there with, I believe, his first novel. And uh, it's illustrated by him as well. I think it's called Mangroves. Uh, and uh, he was having quite a successful weekend with that. So I appreciate uh, him. I got a copy of that myself. So very happy to to reach out and, and, and see, say hi to him. Uh, there was uh, some other folks. Um, another guy that we've had on the station before as well. Uh, his name is Jordan... I'm going to butcher his last name. It's A-L-S-A-Q-A and uh, Jordan Asakwa. Um, we've had them on for a, sh- uh, a comic that he did through Kickstarter called Terminal Protocol, which was great. He's got a new book now that uh, he did with the artist Sally Cantrino, uh, and it's called We Have to Go Back, and it's a really, really great book. It's a really great uh, study uh, for characters. Um, and I definitely recommend checking it out. The artwork is fantastic and, and the writing is great too. It's really, like I said, a great character piece. So it's a lot different than Terminal Protocol, but I definitely recommend it. Uh, also in the Atlanta area, there's a, there's a guy, uh, I guess he's out of SCAD, uh, but he's got his own book called Fear Hunters, which has got a couple of issues. And, uh, and I met him, talked to him for a while. His name is Anderson Carmen. I hope to have him on the show at some point. He's an artist and illustrator. Uh, he wrote and I believe did all the art in this. And it's a, it's great fun. Kind of reminds me of the, the book Chew. If anybody has re- read that, there's very, some, some, some similarities, but it's not, a, it's not a carbon copy at all. Uh, it's great. Um, and it was also cool to ch- catch up with Kelly Yates. Uh, Kelly Yates recently had his artwork featured on a DVD release, Walmart exclusive. If you get the new, animated uh, collection of Doctor Who animated specials that they've done. And uh, it was great seeing Kelly and he was really happy and proud with that recent artwork as well. So I could go on uh, more and more and talk about more creators that I met and all that. So if you want to reach out to me and if I didn't mention your name, uh, I do apologize because uh, yeah, I just, there was so many people and it was such a good vibe to that show. So I definitely recommend uh, checking it out. I'm going to just definitely try to be there next year. Certainly, I'm not going to wait another five years to come back. Uh, I do hope that uh, to be back next year, maybe even with a table myself, so I can participate and be part of that uh, the great show that is Heroes Con. So uh, check that out. I'm sh- I think they've already got the dates for next year. It's usually Father's Day weekend up in Charlotte, North Carolina. So check that out. And if you have a show that you want us to help promote, or that uh, participate in, or just you want to come on and rave about, like I just did with Heroes, please reach out to us, because we love talking about conventions. So that's going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. Thank you, Bill, for joining us tonight. It was great. Well, thank you for having me. Anything you want to shout out about real quick? No, just uh, once again, thank you all for having me on the show. Uh, A lot of the information that I talked about, you can take a look at on my website, goldenagecomics.org. 
I regularly post some Golden Age uh, covers there, and uh, I have uh, all my old podcasts there if you want to listen to them, and a lot of interesting uh, blog posts that I've done over the years. That is awesome. We'll have a link to that up on our show notes. Great. And Mr. Mike, thank you, sir, as always. As always, it's my pleasure. Anything you're going to shout out about, sir? Yes, I want to give a shout out. Uh, it's a little belated, uh, a couple days old, uh, but I want to give a shout out to all the fathers out there. Father's Day. We've got two of them on the station. So Mike and Bill, happy Father's Day. Belated to you guys. Thank you. Um, as, uh, as well as uh, my own father, who probably will never listen to this, but uh, I'm going to say it anyway. And uh, my brother-in-law uh, and all, and just all the cool fathers out there. It's, uh, I, I can't even imagine uh, the, the work that uh that you guys put into it but uh most of for most of uh most of the fathers that i know are, are really great great folks uh and uh i appreciate them that is awesome sir yeah from all of us here at the eso network and especially from mike and mike here definitely hope everyone had a wonderful father's day so very cool uh for me i'm going to give a quick shout out i mentioned a couple weeks ago a wonderful television show called Russian Doll. It's up on Netflix and they have just announced that they are coming back for season two. It has been renewed. Thank you folks at Netflix. If you haven't checked it out, think of basically Groundhog Day, but with a certain twist to it. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, not that many episodes and, you know, they're only 30 minutes each. Definitely check it out. And, you know, let us know what you think of it. So speaking of letting us know what you think about it, we will be back again next week. And we are going back to the movies. <laughs> we gave you a week off this week. And we are looking at Toy Story 4. That's right, folks. Woody, Buzz, and crew were back. And we get to go look at some really awesome animation. So it should be a lot of fun to do. And, you know, we will be back then. Until then, my name is Mike Faber. And we will see you here next time on your Station One podcast. Peace. And we're done. You've been listening to the Air Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Air Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.